my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. More Than a Movie is back with season two. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like, I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Math & Magic, a production of iHeartRadio. You said, I like the 35-hour work week so much. That I do it twice a week. Absolutely. I leave everything with intensity, and that is the secret. Intensity is probably the right word if you want to live fully. I'm Bob Pittman. I've had a lot of jobs over the years, and I've been lucky enough to be at the center of some major cultural and media revolutions. The cable revolution in the 80s as the co-founder of MTV, the internet revolution in the 90s, as the COO of America Online, AOL, in the pre-Google and Facebook days, and now the audio revolution as the chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia, America's number one audio company. And that's only part of my story. 
I started out in a little town in Mississippi, son of a minister, got my real first job at a radio station in my teens. It's where my roots are, music, voices, hearing people's stories. And one of the things I've always loved is trying to decode how big ideas find their way into the world. This new show, Math and Magic, is about those stories. It's about the stories from the frontiers of marketing. Each show, I sit down with visionaries to hear how they've used data and creativity to bring incredible ideas to life. On this episode, we have with us a living legend of advertising, marketing, and communications, Maurice Levy, the former and legendary chairman and CEO of Publicis Group. And just to give you an idea of his impact as CEO, the company increased its value some hundredfold during his tenure at the top. Maurice also has an unusual perspective. He was just the second CEO of the company, and he joined the company back in 1971 as its director of IT. Yeah, he was a data guy a full 30 to 40 years before it became the thing. He was one of the pioneers of globalization, too, and even has a legendary story about literally saving the company from a fire. But before we get to all that and a lot more, welcome, Maurice. Bonjour. Glad to have you here. And by the way, congratulations on your induction into the Advertising Hall of Fame. Quite an honor. Merci. It's great. I feel um, humbled. I was sort of surprised you weren't already in there, but uh, but that's another <laughs> debate. We always start our episodes with a feature we called You in 60 Seconds. Do you prefer cats or dogs? None. Chess or checkers? Chess. Paris or New York City? Difficult to choose. I love both. Skiing or snowboarding? Skiing. Jazz or classical? Jazz. Do you have a secret talent? No. I have a secret sauce. And the secret sauce is? The secret sauce is live at the maximum of speed. <laughs> Childhood hero? Probably the most important is Victor Hugo. What's your favorite word? Merci. Your least favorite word? Bonjour. Because I have to wake up. <laughs> and <laughs> any food you will never eat? Pork. Okay, let's jump into the defining moment in your professional life. You joined Publicis as director of IT in 1971. And for those of you who were not around back then, in 1971, most people didn't know what IT was or even data. It was a very forward-thinking job for that time. A year into your job, a fire breaks out in the office. You are the hero of the story, grabbed a fireman's jacket and helmet, rushed into the building, by the way, breaking every rule and probably every law to do that, to save the magnetic tapes containing the company's computer files. And I heard you actually threw the tapes and disc out the window to colleagues standing outside. And this act of business bravery and personal risk meant the company was able to invoice clients on time, carry on the business more or less as normal, not run out of money despite the destruction of the offices. Did I get it Pay right? the salary. Pay the salary. That was about to go Pay the salary. <laughs> now we're getting to we it. We were the 28th of <laughs> September, so people were waiting for 30th of September to get the salary paid. Now, how did you hear about the fire? What led up to this? The story starts, I had a dinner with friends, and then I took the car with my friends, and we went up the Champs-Élysées, and I saw the sky red, and I said, publicist burning. They stop bringing everything to you. It's not publicist which's burning. It's probably the bank nearby. The more I got closer to the Champs-Élysées, to the office, the more I saw that it was publicist. So he left the car 
and I rushed. What led me to enter was twofold. First, it has been an enormous, enormous work to get everything done on time for the new system. We have been working for some 12 months, day, night, weekend, Bastille Day. You can imagine in France, Bastille Day. It's like in the 4th of July, you are working. Christmas, uh, Pesach, whatever day it was, we were working hard. And suddenly to see all this disappear in ashes was impossible to me. And I wanted also, and more importantly, to be sure that there was no one inside. I tried to get in. It was impossible. I had physical fight with a fireman. I waited a little bit, things calmed down, and they went the back street, and as you said, I broke every single rule. When I get in, there was still some burning aspect, and everything was dark. I was walking in water, and to be honest, I was completely unconscious of the risk. But since then, I must say that this unconsciousness of risk has been a part of my character. I've heard you say the greater the risk, the greater the reward. Is this the same lesson? I was not thinking about any reward. No, I know you were. Uh, I was not thinking at all about any reward. Now, as a result, but not the reason you did it, certainly, is the founder and CEO took notice of you? He did took notice the very first day when I met him in March 2nd, 1971. They were supposed to spend 10, 15 minutes, the classic 10, 15 minutes with the chairman, CEO. We were calling him the Pope of Advertising in France. And um, we stayed one hour together. And he ended up the meeting by giving me his book, handling the book to me. He said, young man, one day you will run that company. I was thrilled. I went home and they said, my wife, uh, you know, this is what he told me. And she said to me, calm down. He's probably saying this to every newcomer. <laughs> so, did he? <laughs> I discovered many years after that he did not. Oh, and I was the very first he did it. Obviously, after the fire, he, he got even bigger notice of me. Marcel Bustin Blanchet, the founder, he built the agency when he was at the age of 20, joined General de Gaulle during uh, the war. He destroyed everything before going to London in order to make sure that he's not going in the hand of the German. He came back from London after a formidable war and a formidable resistance, and he started all over again. And he created the most creative agency of continental Europe. It was a magnet for talent, for uh, people, for clients. You know what Publicis was in those days in, in France. It was a monument. Right. It was like Notre Dame for the advertising world. And um, to imagine that an IT guy, one of these math men in the world of mad men, could one day run the agency was crazy. It was not in my plan. It was not in my wildest dreams. And I was thinking that one day we leave publicists and they will run a more classic company. And in fact, uh, two years after, 
he offered me to be the CEO of the agency. And they refused. And I now, said... Now why did you refuse? I said, you want me because you believe that I have the skills to manage the crisis, which I have, but you don't want me to run the company because you don't believe I have the creative skills. So I prefer to do not disappoint you by being a fake CEO. So what I will do is to fix the issues and then I will go back to my original job. He said, it's the first time that somebody is refusing a promotion. I said, but what you can do is to give me the, the raise, which goes with the promotion. Don't give me the title, give me the raise, which he did. And I did the work. Roughly a year after, he called me and he said, I'm not asking you, I'm telling you the press release, which is going out tomorrow. And you are the next CEO. I always thought of you, oh, here's this wildly creative guy, the ad man of all time that just knew the right campaign, knew how to get the client involved. You were started in IT. How did you make this switch from the math man to the madman? In fact, when I um, graduated from engineer, I was looking for a job, and I have been hired by, or, or at least retained, by a few industrial companies. This was in 66. All this operation, you had this uh, big computer room and big programmer analyst room with four, 500 people in white blouses working on their desk. And I said, oh, Christ, I made the biggest mistake of my life. I will spend my time with these people. This is just crazy. I had already a contract in hand, and I was sharing this view with a friend at a dinner, and he said, but you know, there is this advertising agency, which was not yet publicist, who is looking for its IT manager. I said, but come on, I'm just getting out of school, and you want me to manage it? He said, go. These are admin. They don't know anything about computer. You go, you get the job. I then went. I said, wow, it was a fantastic building full of light, like in your office. All the people were in jeans and long hair, and I was wearing jeans and having long hair, as uh, curious as it could be. And I spent 20 minutes with the CEO, and he gave me the job. Pretty quickly, I was doing my job only in the morning, and I was spending my time in the afternoon either with the IT department or with the media department. I did the very first algorithm of media optimization in France. And this was fun because uh, nobody knew about using operational research and algorithm for optimization of media investment. So I did that. It was a great success. I was 25 and people were taking me for new business. I was a kind of mascot. And every time I was going with them, we are winning. And I was spending time with the creative people. So when I got the offer from Publicis, in the deep of my heart, I was a bit disappointed that I was going back to IT, which I had abandoned. I was already having so much fun with the creative work. When I explained this to Marcel Bustin Blanchet, he said, no, 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 you cannot be both. So you're an IT guy. He criticized me quite often, saying, Moise, you should not do uh, so many things. 
you should just do ads and take care of the clients. And as a matter of fact, uh, uh, I was doing everything which was making me having fun. You're hitting on the topic of this podcast, which is math and magic. There are very few people we talk to that have both the math mind and the creative mind, and you clearly do. Where did it come from? Were you always that way as a kid? The French system of education, at the point in time, you have to choose if you go science and math or if you go literature. I have chosen to do both. (laughs) You you, you broke the system once again. (laughs) You have an aptitude for both. The math aspect has been acquired. The literature, philosophy aspect. I had a grandfather who was telling me a lot of stories, either the biblical stories, or he was explaining to me uh, Spinoza and the Führer, and he was a fantastic storyteller. Your dad was a philosophy professor? Yeah. Fought against Franco yeah. in Spain and wound up in France and then moved on to Morocco when the Nazis began their big move and the family got accepted there. Did it imprint you in any way? Honestly, I don't know. My father couldn't go north because of the Nazis, couldn't go south because of Franco, and he was condemned to death. I had no other choice than to go to Morocco. We moved back to France, and uh, my father continued to fight against Franco in the press and in many other aspects. And my mother was taking care of us. There's a story that you actually got into IT because there was some contest. Can you tell me the story? In fact, it was the first story of my failure. When I uh, was very young, I wanted to be a surgeon. And when I started the education, it has been a bit difficult. As soon as we were entering in a hospital, I was almost uh, to be taken care of. I was going kind of limp. Everyone told me, okay, there is no way that you will be capable of handling a scalpel. So forget about that, and you have to choose another direction. As I failed, uh, I had to find something else, and there has been a contest organized by uh, a shoemaker, who left Czechoslovakia at the time of the Nazis and the Communist Party, etc. And he organized a contest, and they won that contest. And the prize was? And the prize was to go to the U.S. and to learn. IT. Whatever I wanted. Wow, that's a pretty good story. No, it's a nice story. I want to get into how you fended off a foreign takeover, why you decided to bring the company to America, and why you left your large, beautiful office for a much smaller one on the other side of the building. But first, a quick break. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. 
And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives. But those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. On Purpose is dedicated to helping you be happier, healthier and more healed. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how he got comfortable with fear, navigating the changes in relationships, and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. This conversation shows a never-seen-before side to Orlando Bloom and his unique life journey. I think we all struggle sometimes to really deeply believe that we are enough that we're valued, that we're valuable. You know, we're imprinted by our parents from the age of zero to seven, right? Mm. I'm constantly trying to go like, how do I detach from my, from this idea of what, do, is, that, is that my baggage? I look like my baggage. I mean, I know, oh, okay, that's mine. Let's unpack that. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with season two of the award-winning film podcast, and this time, with a lot more movies. I'm your host, Alex Fumero, and each week I'm gonna talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the OG spy kid, Alexa Penavega. You had Carlo Gugino, who's the coolest mom ever. You had Antonio, who's handsome, amazing, charismatic, and then Carvin and Juni. I felt like a lot of other kids felt like this could be me. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Every episode will feature interviews with the biggest actors, directors, writers, and producers behind your favorite films and tap into the history of Latinos in film. Listen to More Than a Movie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Math & Magic. We're here with Maurice Levy. So in 1987, you were 45, I think, at the time. You took over as CEO. At that time, the business, I understand, it was about 80% French business. You set about building the company internationally, I guess, first European. What was it that you saw that put you on that path? Because you were really the king of France. I mean, you couldn't be much bigger in France than you were. Why did you want to expand? It was not so much the fact that we... We are limited in our growth in France. 
which was true because we are so big that it was hard to grow much higher. We could have extended in diversified services. Uh, it was simply that the core of our business is advertising and globalization was at our doors. The client was starting to think global. I thought that if we want to stay alive, we will have to be global. Otherwise, we will lose our business. We will lose our raison d'être. We will lose everything. So I decided that we will go global. Uh, it has been a bit tough with uh, the founder at the beginning. Every time I was suggesting that we go somewhere, he was asking me if uh, there was something that we could bring to that country that they have not already. And I remember when we were speaking about the U.S., I said, but Maurice, the U.S., what, what the heck are you going to do? They are the king of advertising. They are the best in the world, the largest, the biggest. Uh, what do you think you will bring? I said, uh, I will not bring a lot, but they will bring a lot to us. And this is how we should do it. And he said, but it will take a lot of time and you will have to do it yourself, etc. I was leaving on the Monday morning. I was back on the plane of the Tuesday evening. So back at work on uh, Wednesday. And uh, nobody noticed in Paris that I was not there. And at the same time, we were building a pretty good business here. We started to work with great brands and have them growing outside the U.S. in Europe. And then I had to, to wait a little bit for developing the network globally. 1987, yeah. also the time Martin Sorrell bought J. Walter Thompson. Yeah. Coincidence or was there something in the air? Was there a rush to build the first big global agency. The way the Martin Sorrell move has been analyzed, it was much more like a copycat of what he has done with the Saatchi brothers. He was CFO of uh, Saatchi right. and Saatchi. He left to build his own operation. And people were thinking not about globalization, but about the fact that, okay, it's a kind of revenge and he's going to do what he has done with the Saatchi brothers and build a, a, a company like uh, the one he has been working and building. And you wound up with Saatchi and Saatchi. Uh, <laughs> ironically. Ironically. And uh, what is the irony also is that uh, it was in 1980, I believe, I don't remember exactly, I was in my office and Marcel Bustin Blanchet asked me to join him at his office and sitting in the office was Morisachi and Martin Sorrell. Marcel invited me to join them and he said, Maurice, these gentlemen are offering us to make an acquisition together and I would like you to go to London and to see with them if we should be doing it or not. The first attempt was to acquire us but with Marcel, there was no chance that we will be selling. And with me, even less chances. <laughs> I went to London. I had a wonderful day at Saatchi and Saatchi with Maurice, with Martin, and Charles, who came and just say hello. At the end of the meeting, Maurice and Martin asked me what I will recommend to the old man. I said, I will recommend not to make the deal. And he said, but why? We have, it will be a 50-50 acquisition. 
I said, yes, but your 50% will always be bigger than ours. And that was end of story or maybe the beginning of a story between uh, the fantastic friendship which unites me to Martin. You talked about enabling the future. What do you mean by that? In fact, it's coming from uh, Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, the writer of The Little Prince. He said, as for the future, we don't expect that you will foresee it, but we expect that you will enable it. And this sentence has worked a lot in my little head. And they said, in fact, there are very, very few people who foresee the future. But there are a lot of people who are enabling the future. One of the people who have foreseen the future is clearly Einstein, and there is no many Einstein. But there are a lot of engineers who have enabled it. I don't believe that they can be part of uh, the people who can foresee the future and invent what the future will be. But where I can have an action is to enable it and to enable our client to at least adapt themselves to the future and to be ready for the future, to help our agency to be ready for the future. And that's the reason for the many acquisition I have made in the digital field, particularly digital at the time where bubble burst was not yet finished and everyone was still in a terrible situation or razor fish, which I acquired in 2009 or sapient and now epsilon uh, because this is part of the future. What you have to do is to do two things. One is to elevate barricade in order that it's more difficult for them to come that the defense strategy, and the second is an offense strategy uh, to go in their field and to eat in their plate. And the one with the longest fork to eat in the other plate is the one who is winning. And this is what we did with uh, uh, Digitas, Resorfish, and Sapient. And this has helped us a great deal. And now with Epsilon, we can help our clients to do what you do so well. You have been also, I know it's not about you, but sorry to say that, you have transformed iHeartMedia in an incredible way and you have foreseen and enabled the future of radio because you have seen what digital could be for radio. And it was not only to have a satellite system and to use digital radio, but you have done much more. You were one of the first people to talk about getting rid of silos. And yes. today, everyone's talking about getting rid of silos. How do you make that happen? It's difficult. For years, it has been positive for the client. But at the moment, everyone was trying to sell his own turf without thinking about how. How the heck I coordinate all this in order to make sure that every single touch point is helping the client. And the only way to do that because of people who were sitting in their fiefdoms was to eliminate the walls. They created an internal slogan, which is no silo, no solo, no bozo. And bozos very often are the ones who are getting in the way and defending the silo approach. And this conservatism is uh, working against the interests of the client. So we have to fight against that conservatism. And you find the biggest obstacle are the people in the silos? The biggest obstacle are the people. How do you convince them to come out of the silo? 
that life will be better for them. You have to spend a lot of time explaining, explaining, explaining. You have no choice. You cannot find an easy way to break the silo because you are changing the way people were. Mankind is made of habits, and it's tough. Some cannot change, and that, as painful as it can be, if you want the good of the company, you have to accept that they leave the company. And some are discovering a new world and excited and uh, are enjoying everything, every piece of it, every bit of it, and it is fantastic. 2017, you stepped down as CEO. How long had you and Arthur been working on that? From the outside, it has looked like one of the smoothest and most seamless transitions I've ever seen. One, was it really? And two, what was the process of doing that? It's not easy. Let's face it. A clear cut was what I thought would be the best. I decided that I will um, not accept the job of chairman and I will uh, leave the company. The daughter of the founder was at that time the chairwoman of the supervisory board insisted. The board insisted. Arthur himself insisted. And he said, I'm not going to accept the job if you leave. I said, but I will be outside and I will help you. So don't worry. No, 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 no. I want you inside and I want you to be the chairman. So I finally accepted. And I thought that it will be a failure. To the surprise of many people, including myself, we found a formidable way of working together. First, when uh, you are in that position, you have to accept that somebody else is doing the job and you should not interfere. I'm letting Arthur doing his job. I'm here. We are speaking every day. We are meeting very often in the week. We are in deep connection. I'm never, never telling him what he has to do. I'm uh, always helping him making his own decision. And I'm not saying that is you have two decisions that the good and the bad one. No, I'm analyzing. I'm saying, okay, when you look at those decisions, you have to look at that aspect, that aspect, that aspect. And if you go for that uh, decision, these are the consequences. If you go for that decision, these are the consequences. And he is making his decision, and when necessary, he's asking me for advice. Where I can help him also is my, is my relationship with clients. When you are running a company for 30 years, the heart of the company since the end of the 70s, so you have built a bit of relationships in the business. The second aspect where I have an impact is on acquisition. It's not a secret that on Epsilon, I have been at the forefront since the beginning. And the, the third aspect is I don't like the word mentoring because this is a little bit patronizing, but in helping. And one day I told him, I would like to be your best assistant. <laughs> you have to have the humility that you are no longer the CEO, that somebody else is doing the job, and you have to look through the window. How hard is that? It's not that hard. I thought it would be much harder. The first move I did was to force him to take my office. 
And I said, symbolically, people have to see that you are the boss. And they went back to the almost first office that I had in the new building. <laughs> Let's jump a minute. You launched France's answer to CES, the Viva Tech conference. What was the genesis of the idea? You know, it was not to compete against CES. And I think CES is quite unique and is fantastic. I thought that if France wanted to be seen for the ambition that President Macron had, we needed to have a kind of lighthouse, something which is a reflection of the heartbeat of French tech. Last year was the third year. We had more than 1,000 visitors. We had 9,000 startups. This year, we are expecting to be even more than 100,000 visitors. We expect to be more than 10,000 startups. And we expect to have more than 2,000 journalists. We had last year 1,900. And we expect also to have more than 2,000 investors. It's uh, extremely vibrant. And one of the results is that it has energized the French tech. It started out with probably a heavy dose of French tech folks. The last time I was there, it looked like it had gone to the whole worldwide. Is that the mix now? You've, uh, yeah, we, we uh, I saw a lot of Americans I know there. <laughs> and this year you will see a lot of Chinese. Oh, interesting. So let's go to a quote. You have this great quote. I hope it's really a real quote because it's just too good. You said, I like the 35-hour work week so much that I, I do, do it, it a couple twice. times a week. I do it twice a week. Absolutely. So what's your view of your work-life balance? What does that say about how you live your life? Uh, you know, I have a life which is absolutely full in many aspects. I live everything with intensity, and that is probably the secret. When I'm with my family, my wife, my sons, their wives, my grandchildren, I live that moment with intensity. It is so intense that uh, even if it is short, it is fulfilling. Intensity is probably the right word if you want to live fully. And that's what I'm trying to do. This has been great. We love having you on a podcast. This podcast is about, I go back to math and magic. But we always ended on one thing. I want you to think for a second about who is the most analytical marketer you've met? Who's the best mathematician on that side of the spectrum? I'm not sure I have yet met him. I have seen a lot of very good. In our world, we have stars, creative stars. And there are many. At the next generation, you have a few of those stars coming from the math side of the world. So let's go to the easier question. Who's the greatest magician? Who's the most creative? Who's in your Hall of Fame? Okay, if I'm going back... You can go back as far as you want to go back. I will have to choose between three people. It's difficult, so we'll give the three names. We'll, we'll give it a tie. I will give Marcel Bresson Blanchet, obviously, but not because he has been my boss or he has been my mentor. I will give David Ogilvy and uh, Bill Bernbach. And they can add Leo Burnett. 
These are the greatest names. Today, if I have to put a few names, I will probably add Dan Wyden. I think that he's terrific, that he has done a fantastic, fantastic job. And there are plenty of great people in our industry. The beauty in our industry is that you have personalities. These people are extremely demanding. They are never satisfied. They are never complacent. And they are looking for the very best. It's a good way to end. Maurice, thank you. Thank you, Bob. That's it for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening to Math and Magic, a production of iHeartRadio. The show is hosted by Bob Pittman. Special thanks to Sue Schillinger for booking and wrangling our wonderful talent, which is no small feat. Nikki Etor for pulling research, Bill Plax and Michael Azar for their recording help, our editor Ryan Murdoch, and of course, Gail, Raul, Eric, Angel, Noel, Mango, and everyone who helped bring this show to your ears. Until next time. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie. Because John Stamos' picture was already up on the wall. Listen to More Than a Movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get ready for Smart Money Happy Hour. Pull up a chair. It's the happy hour you wish your friends were having. Mix two money experts with some hot takes and a splash of nostalgia, and you get me, George Camel. And me, Rachel Cruz, talking unfiltered about what's going on in the world, pop culture, and how to afford a life you love. We're talking money, celebrity budgets, and my budget for my two French Bulldogs. It's a lot. (laughs) You'll hear it all on Smart Money Happy Hour. Listen on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts.